going to Genesis chapter 3. This is the first prophecy about the Messiah. As far as I could tell. I mean, some of you might have a different answer. But it's definitely up there. You don't get much earlier than Genesis chapter 3. Humanity had a good run for a little bit there, didn't we? The first of God's creation. They didn't even wait for their kids to mess it up, did they? <laughs> Just let's, let's get right into it, guys. When I was a kid, I used to think that I was going to have an argument with Adam in heaven. Say, so you messed it up for all of us, bro. The truth is, I bet I sinned a lot more than Adam did. So he could probably answer back with that. <laughs> and I just don't think there's going to be a lot of arguing in heaven. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 tells the story of the fall of mankind. They fell for the same trap that we still fall for. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The lust of the flesh in the sense that the serpent said to Eve, wouldn't this fruit taste good? Lust of the eyes, she saw and she saw that it looked good to eat. The pride of life, which was the killer. If you ate this, wouldn't you be like God? Wouldn't you be as wise as God? They bought the lie. And humanity died in Adam that day. They looked around and said, we're still breathing. I guess we're okay. But we've come to understand that death is not when your heart stops beating. Death is separation from God who is life. You've all been dead before. You've all died. The, if you're believers here today, you've died the last death you're ever going to die. Your heart can stop. Your lungs can stop. Your brain can stop. But you're not going to die. Because you're not your body. Your body's just what you live in. The New Testament says the saints that have fallen asleep in Christ. Because sleep is temporary. Death is permanent. Adam sinned. Eve sinned. And in Adam we all died. But the scripture talks about a second Adam. And here God comes to Adam and Eve after they've sinned and it's the moment that they've sinned that shame enters the earth. And they, they see their own nakedness and they are ashamed. And they hide from the presence of God. Which is an odd thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. To hide. But they heard the sound of the Lord in, in Genesis 3.8. They heard the sound of the Lord God, or Yahweh God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I won't say much about this, but there's been a convincing case by some Hebrew scholars that, that the words that are translated cool of the day, if you go back to some original transcripts, could also be interpreted as God coming in a, in a cloud of judgment. And um, I know that's very different from cool of the day, but you, you actually ask yourself, why are they hiding because of the cool of the day? There's nothing scary about the cool of the day. But they had never seen God in a, in, a, in a cloud of judgment. They'd never seen a response to sin before. They hide. They're experiencing something they've never experienced before. Separation. They're experiencing shame. They're experiencing a sense that we're not right with God. This is something they don't know about. 
and they hide, they run, and they hide themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. In verse 9, then the Lord God, and I keep saying Yahweh because that's why in your Bible this is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's saying Yahweh, this God that we know by name. Called to the man and said to them, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. It was my wife's fault. It's always my wife's fault. You know this. We carry on his tradition to this day. Because with shame comes blame, right? We instantly try to blame. We look around. Who's the closest person? They did it. Or, or God, you did this to me. Because he, he, he somehow manages to go for the double here and blame the woman and blame God. You're the one that gave her to me. Manufacturer's defect. I didn't do this. You gave me this woman. And she tricked me. She's pretty and she's tricked me. And I didn't know what to do. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, uh, it was the serpent that deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than any beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel And we'll stop there because you could walk away from this story and just say this is about people not liking snakes. But I think you'd be missing a big key here. Because certainly um, there's something to be said for that, but there's, there's more being said. It's not just that the Lord is saying snakes are bad now. And every time you go to the reptile garden in the zoo, your, your, your wife's going to be uncomfortable. And, and you're going to force your kid to look at it when they're saying, can't we go see the raccoons or can't we go see the bears or whatever. You want to stay with the snakes. He's not talking about, it, you know, snakes are going to be a problem for the rest of your life. That, there's more to it than that. He's speaking to Satan himself. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and her. And he says something, her seed. Without getting graphic, if you took junior high health, you know women don't have a seed. That's right. Right? Not getting a lot of you. That's right. So I'm just hoping that you're processing. Hang on, what now? You know, it's the male that has the seed. It's the woman that has the egg, right? All right, we don't need to talk more about that, okay? And, and don't bring up, don't bring up the, uh, you know, the, the uh, what's the horsefish? Do you know what I'm talking about? Seahorse. Don't bring up seahorses to me where the male has the baby. I'm not going to talk about that. I don't know why they didn't just call him the female, but whatever. The woman doesn't have a seed, so what's, what's he talking about? There was only one person in history that's ever been born without the involvement of a father, a natural father, and that was Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin. The Holy Spirit came upon her and overshadowed her. And that woman had a seed. And this seed 
This descendant was going to crush the head of the serpent. Yet his heel would be bruised. In fact, uh, these are the same words, the bruised and crushed. It's the same word both times. Satan's head would be crushed, but the seed, that, that, that child, that, that descendant, his heel would be crushed. It's an amazing thing, and I don't want to go too deep into this, but it's an amazing thing to think of how God could have handled this problem. I'm, I'm sure he could have done this without humanity, but if he had done it without humanity, humanity itself would not be redeemed. So we go back to Philippians 2 and say Jesus had to empty himself and become one of us. Take on the form of flesh and blood. The scripture says, in that scripture I quoted about Jesus having the power of death, taking the power of death from the, from the enemy. It, it says before that, because he likewise shared in flesh and blood. He partook of the same flesh and blood we had. Because in doing so, he redeemed the very thing that messed everything up. He redeemed humanity by becoming human. God could have bypassed us, but by bypassing us, he wouldn't have redeemed us. So Jesus comes down, and he, the woman made the first wrong move, and, and Adam made the grand, terrible move, but it is in the woman, through the woman, that redemption comes. Mary has a baby. Jesus allowed himself to be humbled to the point of starting off in a baby's body. Being a baby, it was not just, you know, it's not like he's like, you know, super brain inside a baby, just like one of those weird movies where the babies talk with adult voices. Like the Bible says in Luke that Jesus had to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with men. So, you know, he's not just inside a baby's body looking around going, I can't wait to get out of here. These people are idiots. You know, can't I just... Ah, oh, they, they never changed my diaper. Like this guy, had, he had to grow. He had to grow like we have to grow. He was fully God and he was fully man. And I want to talk to you for a minute about something that stirred in the prophet Isaiah. And we talked about this last week. We actually read from Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 54 and we mentioned the middle of that, which is Isaiah 53. Which tells us all about the bruising of the heel. About the fact that Jesus could not redeem us without himself. He could not crush the head of Satan without allowing himself to be bruised and crushed as well. That's how he shared in our flesh and blood. That's how he redeemed us. He had to allow himself to be put in a position to be bruised and crushed. Isaiah 53 says this, and and let's read it together. I'm going to read from the very, very start from verse 1. It's, it's, we don't often read this Good Friday type verse around Christmas time. But the scripture tells us this. John writes, For this purpose was the Son of God manifest, to destroy the works of the evil one. For this purpose was the Son of God manifest, to destroy The works of the evil one. So when was the Son of God manifest? Manifest means revealed. When was the Son of God revealed to the world? 
as a baby, right? Now, we could also say there were levels of revealing. There were levels of, he, he manifested himself as, as the Messiah at a different point. He manifested himself as the risen Savior. We can say all of that. But he was first revealed to the world as that little baby. So when we're talking about Christmas, we're talking about the revealing of Christ. Now, we know it didn't happen in December, but you know what? This is the season that we're thinking about it. We're talking about it. We're celebrating that God became one of us. And it's important that we know the purpose. Because you know what? We, we have the cliche teddy bear Christian greeting card answers, and we'll say, well, he came to show us peace. He came to teach us to love one another. Yeah, all that's true. But you couldn't do all that without being redeemed. Right? I could tell you all day long, love one another, love one another, love one another. But until you are set free from the bondage of sin, you will try to love your neighbor and you will find it impossible. But the moment we were set free, redeemed, the love of God, the scripture says, was poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we can love. He made peace. Between God and man. He won peace, so now we can say peace on earth. We can't say peace on earth just because we put a little peace symbol on a flag and marched outside, you know, parliament buildings. That's, that's not enough. Because the peace we needed wasn't just a couple nations stopped shooting at each other for a while. The peace we needed was much deeper than that. The peace we needed had to be fought for. It had to be won. And it has been. So when we see those signs that say peace, blessed are the peacemakers. I pray, I pray that we would see peace in our nation. I pray that nations would cease from war. But, but the truth is that the peace we're talking about when we talk about this season is much deeper. Much deeper than nations not going to war. It's much deeper. It's a peace Jesus had to die to get. And it says he did it by destroying the enmity, by nailing it to himself on the cross. He made peace. He made peace. So when we say peace on earth, there'll be a day when every sword will be bent back into a plowshare. There'll be a day when all that happens. We're not going to see it until Jesus comes and sets his foot on the planet. And recreates and, and makes all things new again. Amen. You're not going to see that just by, uh, you know, giving a check to Amnesty International. Although you, you may do that. There's no real peace outside of him. And he won that peace. So when we look at Isaiah 53. When we ask ourselves, what is the purpose of, of this season? What was the purpose of Jesus Coming as a baby, it's more than just to show us something. It was to accomplish something. For this purpose was the Son of God manifest to destroy the works of the evil one. What's the meaning of Christmas? What's the purpose of Christmas? To destroy the works of the evil one. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised or discounted. We did not esteem him. We gave him no worth or value. We didn't think that he was valued or that he was worth something. This is all part of God himself allowing, allowing himself to be crushed. Of Jesus allowing himself to be bruised for you. It says this, surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. When we look at this, this is exactly what God promised in Genesis 3. Your seed is going to put his foot down on the head of the serpent. And there'll be a moment where we look and we go, oh no, he's being crushed, he's being bruised. That heel, the heel of the seed is being bruised, it's being harmed, it's, it's looking like this isn't going well. But in the process of allowing himself to be bruised, he is going to crush the head of the serpent. Why does that matter for you today? Why is this more than a history lesson? Because we have to live in a reality that Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient, that it was final, and that it did all that it needed to do. That in that moment, God kept his word. And everything from Genesis to Revelation is a long story of God keeping his word. And from the moment we sinned, he used the very vessel that sin came into the world. He used the very vessel that messed everything up to redeem it again. God could have bypassed us, but he didn't. He came as one of us. And isn't this the story you see throughout the scripture? God taking the very people that were crushed and oppressed and using them to crush and oppress the head of the devil. We talked a few weeks ago about that guy in the land of the Gerasenes who comes out and is full of evil spirits and Jesus redeems them and his whole city to ask Jesus to leave because they're freaked out that this guy is better now. They're not freaked out that crazy naked guy is running around the tomb scraping himself and screaming, but it's real scary that he's wearing clothes. And here he goes and he says, Jesus, can I get in the boat with you? These are the people, his town, these are the people that chained him up. These are the people that kept him captive. These are the people that shamed his whole family. Can I come with you? You're the one that set me free. You're the one that believed that there was something valuable in me that was worth saving. Jesus says, no, you go back to your town. You tell them what I did. And we said this before, but when Jesus came back to that land of the Decapolis region, he had to feed 4,000 people and their families. Yeah. Because that dude, all he knew was, I was oppressed, but now I'm free. And he went back to his town. And he must have done something because a crowd was waiting for Jesus the next time. God will take the very people who are captive, the very people who were oppressed, the very people who, who it looks like they're the issue, they're the problem. He will redeem those people. And they'll turn around 
and they'll carry on his mission. For this purpose was the Son of God manifest to destroy the works of the evil one, and we've been brought into that mission. We've been brought into it. Jesus came as a human to undo what we messed up. He came to redeem what was lost. He came to redeem, and and he did it. As we look and we remember that he crushed the head of the serpent, he did it by allowing himself to be crushed. And I've said this before, and I won't make a big point of it, but you know, in our culture, the greatest thing you can do is just do your own thing. Be yourself. Follow your heart. Do what you want to do. But it says all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has gone after his own way. But the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The iniquity that fell on Jesus was the result of us doing our own thing. That's what Jesus had to die for. Was humanity from the start saying, I got a better idea. And Jesus died for this. Can you imagine a God that from the moment we mess up makes a promise, I'll make this right? Can you imagine a God that all throughout history, he says, I'm picking a group of people that I can show the world my glory through. And don't forget, I'm coming to rescue you all. Mm-hmm. And you look and you say, well, God, why, why did the Israelites have to do this? When they brought into the Canaan land, why did you tell them to do this? Because all this time, God was protecting a line through which he would redeem all of humanity. All of scripture is one long story of God's faithfulness. From the moment we sinned, he said, I will redeem you. I'll make this right. I'll set you free. I want to read you one more thing here. It's something you know, but it's something that's encouraging to me. Colossians chapter 1. And, and, and you know, guys, you can hear stuff like this and just get all cerebral, sit back and Daydream in your head. Or you can say, how does this affect the world I live in? The end of the day, Jesus did come and showed, he showed us what love looked like. He did show us what peace looked like. He showed us what generosity looked like. He showed us what grace looked like. All of these things were revealed. He showed us what truth looked like. All of these things were revealed through him. And I want to remind you of a couple things he said. This is what drove Jesus to the cross. Towards the end of his time with the disciples, he says things like this. He tells them the Holy Spirit's coming, and he says the Holy Spirit will convict the world. He says the Holy Spirit will convict them concerning righteousness. He's going to convict them concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin because they don't believe in me. But remember what he, one of the things he says. He says... Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So Jesus, before the cross, is already stepping into the reality of judgments come. And so many times when we hear the word judgment comes, we're like, ah, we want to get out of the room. But in this case, judgment was very good. Because judgment was on your side. The The ruler, he says this in another place. In John chapter 12, he begins to tell them. In fact, I'll read it to you real quick while you hold your place in Colossians. In John chapter 12, he says something that is is so, they just had no clue at the time. It sends goosebumps down my, my arm reading it. 
In John 12, 27, he says, now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. See, we can't celebrate Christmas without remembering what the, the whole reason of Jesus coming was for. What was the reason he came? We can't just celebrate the manger without looking towards the cross and the resurrection. For this purpose I came. Here's why I came. Not just to be a cute little baby that you could put in like live nativity scenes. Not, not, just, to, not just to kind of bring a, a sense of, oh, you know, hey, we all feel kind of peaceful around this time. The guns fell silent on Christmas Eve. There's something bigger about it. For this purpose, I was revealed to the world to destroy the very thing that held you captive, to take back the power of death over you, to take back the power of sin in your life, to take back the people that were held captive for so long and were slaves to darkness. I took them out of the domain of darkness and I translated them into my kingdom. This statement, Jesus coming in the manger was, the, was D-Day. That was his boots getting put on the shores and saying this is the beginning of the end for the enemy. This is his Normandy. His boots are on the ground. He's on the planet and it's the beginning of the end for the kingdom of darkness. So when we look at a manger, it's more than just, oh, sweet little baby Jesus. We're looking at that manger and saying, this is when everything started to go wrong for the kingdom of darkness. In fact, let me just say, everything started to go wrong from the kingdom of darkness from the moment God said, I will crush you. And I'm going to buy these people back. You have not won today. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. It's for this purpose I came to this hour. Verse 28 says this. <laughs> That's not what it says. <laughs> Father, glorify your name. You know, God lives outside of time. He is a patient God. And it's for this moment, he's, this is the moment he's going to be glorified. This is this moment that he's going to be glorified. The moment that we all look and we go, we looked at Jesus and said, he must have been stricken by God. We looked at him and gave him no value. We looked at him and thought he did something wrong, but it's in that moment that God is going to show his glory. Watch me crush the head. See, the serpent thinks he's crushing me. The serpent is rejoicing because my heel is bruised. But watch, in the process of trying to bruise my heel, I am crushing his head. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken to him. But Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake. It's come for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. <gasps> Remember, judgment came into the world in the garden. But there's a different type of judgment in the world right here. Because in this statement, when Jesus says judgment has come upon the world, he's not talking about judgment has come upon humanity. He's saying judgment has come to the ruler of this world. Judgment has come to darkness. My judgment against sin in the garden said that the wages of sin are death. 
But don't forget, the gift of God is eternal life. Judgment in the garden was separation. But Jesus brought judgment that reconciled us to God. Judgment is upon this world. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Isn't that awesome? Little R ruler. Little puny R ruler of this world. The usurper, the fake, the charlatan. He will be, the pretender will be cast out. Verse 32. And I... If I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death which he was to die. I've said this before, so you know it. But we say, but lift Jesus higher. Lift Jesus higher. Lift him up so the world could see. And we use this, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men. But he really wasn't saying, if you throw a pep rally for me, I'll draw people. He says, if I'm crucified in that act of crucifixion, in that act of being crushed, in that act of being shamed, I am drawing all of humanity back to me. And the book of Colossians says that God, actually it says this in, 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 in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself on the cross. Reconciling the world to himself on the cross. All of this is a giant story of God saying, I will not allow you to be taken. I will not allow you to stay captive. I will not allow you to stay in the own, your own mess that you made. I will give myself to bring you back. So I see that manger. I see that kid in the manger. I see that baby in the manger. I remember I've been called to this purpose to be a minister of reconciliation. That, that baby in the manger reminds me that God, Jesus could have stayed in, 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 his, in his beautiful robes of deity. He could have stayed in a place where he just sat, sat on the throne and said, these guys messed it up. But he came and became one of us to utterly destroy the works of the evil one that had held me captive. And that makes me want to tell somebody. This was a declaration of war. In fact, it was a declaration of war when God said, I'll crush you. I'll crush you. And the men and women of faith throughout history, throughout all the Old Testament, looked forward to that. And they held on to that. And if they were driven from their homeland, if they were made to live in tents, if they were persecuted, if they were like Moses and gave up a palace to live with the slaves, all of that they did it gladly because they looked ahead. The prophets made careful searches and inquiries and says, who is this guy that God keeps talking about through us? But the scripture says it's been revealed to us that they were prophesying for our benefit. That's why we're going to go through four weeks of talking about prophecy because you think, well, that was for them then. No, the scripture says it was for us. It was for them and it was for us to whom the fullness of the age has come. Now I'm going to read that verse in Colossians, the section of scripture here. And we'll close with this thought. Verse 13 He rescued us from the domain or the control of darkness. He transferred us. And I said this to you guys yesterday. This word transfer is the same word that's used when Philip is snatched from the Ethiopian and instantly put in another place. Jesus didn't take you on a slow journey from darkness to light. You were translated. You were changed in a moment. 
transferred us, translated us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption. Redemption, he bought us back. Adam was redeemed and Eve was redeemed. Adam was redeemed because Jesus became the second Adam. Eve was redeemed because it was the woman that God used to bring redemption back to the planet. Man sinned in the garden. Jesus was raised in the garden. The earth was cursed in that garden. The earth was redeemed in that garden. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Why is he the firstborn of all creation? Yes, he existed before all of us, but there's, there's another sense of him being the firstborn. The scripture at another point says he is the firstborn from the dead. He was the first to be resurrected. His resurrection brought us resurrection. And through him, we will all be resurrected. We have been partaken in that resurrection. Verse 16 says this. For by him, all things were created. Because you know, he couldn't, Jesus was not born before the beginning of time. He's always existed, right? Mm -hmm. So what birth is he talking about? It it certainly wasn't just the birth of Mary having a baby because a lot of people have been born before that. He's the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. He is not created. He is the creator. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning. And here we go, the firstborn from the dead. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile, to bring back all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, you were engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. I'm in the scripture. I'm here. Because he says, he reconciled all things, things on earth, things in heaven, and you. And you were reconciled. I want us to see we walk around, we look at these decorations, we, we listen to some of the songs, and I know they're becoming less and less about Jesus and more and more about other things. But as you think about what this is about, I want you to see it as a mission statement. Judgment has come to the world. Yes. But it's not the judgment that we need to be afraid of. The ruler of this world has been judged. <laughs> and we're on the good side of this judgment. We're on the right side of judgment now. 
We were on the wrong side, but we're on the right side. When you see that baby in the manger, I want you to hear that verse in your head over and over again. I want you to hear God saying, I will use the seed of the woman to crush your head. And I want you to hear that statement about Jesus. For this purpose was the Son of God manifest to destroy the works of the evil one. I want you to hear Jesus saying, it was for this purpose that I came to this hour. Now the ruler of this world has been judged. Now judgment has come on the earth. Now I'm making all things right again. That's good news. That's why Christmas matters. Christmas is more about, more than, I mean, you all know it's not about the presents and the, the tree and all of that, but you, you do know it's more than just about peaceful, loving feelings. It's more than just about happy joy and, and all of that. It's, it's really about God judging the ruler of this world who got his power because of us. We gave our dominion up and God winning it back and redeeming all of us. When we see the manger, we see the cross. When we see the cross, we see the resurrection. When we see the resurrection, we see the throne. We see our place in all of those things. I was on the cross with Jesus. I was resurrected with Jesus. And I will rule and reign with Jesus. Man. It's hard to be bored at Christmas when you think of it that way. I got a mission. You've got a mission. Because the Bible says he reconciled the world to himself, but it says he's made us agents, ministers of reconciliation. We read this last week. As though God were in us making a case, pleading, be reconciled to God. That's our purpose, to let God make his case through us. Hey, come back. Everything that needs to be done has been done. Let me tell you, God did this for you. He bought us back. He won us back. He's reconciling the world to himself. Will you be reconciled? And the answer, I hope, is yes. God sent angels to the shepherds, but he's not sending angels to preach the gospel. He certainly can, and I imagine he does from time to time, but he sent you to preach the gospel. He sent you to preach this message. So when your kids ask, what's Christmas about? I hope you'll tell them the whole story. Starts at Genesis and it goes all the way to the end. The, The Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the Lamb, He has overcome. Let's stand up and let's pray together.